Well, two weeks ago, we began looking at the prayers of the Apostle Paul. And at that time, we looked at his prayer, or one of his prayers in his letter to the church of Colossae, or the letter to the Colossians. And we saw in that some valuable application to our own lives. And so today, we come to this time when we will take a look at another one of those prayers, and that is written to the Ephesian church uh, that he writes. Um, and once again, because the letter to the Ephesians is recognized as the inspired word of God, everybody say inspired word of God. All right. Then it's profitable to us. If you're a note taker, write down 2 Timothy 3.16. It's profitable to us, and it becomes God's will for us. And so we don't just read this letter, by the way, which was intended and probably read by multiple churches across the region. Um, but it's it wasn't just written to the church of Ephesus or the other churches who read it, but by proxy, because it's God's inspired word, it's we take it to ourselves by the Holy Spirit. And um, so that we would be a people of eternal hope. We've subtitled today, That You May Know, and you'll see where we get that title in a few moments. And I want to say, just like I said two weeks ago, I want us to hear the Apostle Paul, who gave us you know, most of our New Testament, at least half, of the New Testament, I want us to hear the Apostle Paul praying for us. Or I want you to hear the Apostle Paul praying for you. Everybody say praying for me. Praying. I want you to believe that because when he prayed, he didn't know he was praying for you. He didn't have he didn't know your name. And but he was praying for you because God's Holy Spirit spoke to him and through him. Now, he wasn't in a trance. He was just writing down. But it was the Holy Spirit helping him write those words. And so we're going to begin today. By, by the way, let me just say this. In a little while, I'm going to ask you to turn to Lamentations 3. And somebody said, well, my goodness, just, where in the world is that? Well, it's, it's right after Jeremiah. Uh, if you want to get ahead and put a marker there, then you do that. Because I really want you to turn when I get there. I hate it when I say turn to a verse in the Bible and everybody just stares at me. At least look at your phone and act like you're looking it up on your phone. Even if you're surfing Facebook, do something. But right now we're going to look at Ephesians 1 and verse 15. And I would invite you, recognizing the sacredness of God's word, I would invite you to stand while we read these words. Starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith... By the way, I'm reading in the, from the English Standard Version again. In the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what, it, what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness 
Everybody say immeasurable. Immeasurable. That's a key word here. Greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. That's the one we live in. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You can be seated. As I was looking at this passage and looking at this prayer, one, one of the first things that jumped out at me in verse 17, I think it's verse 17, yes, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory. That just that just struck me. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. We sing a song around here, or everybody sings this. You're a good, good Father. And we relate to God as our Heavenly Father. And when I saw that, I saw two things. And the first thing I saw was that it affirms His incarnate humanity. It affirms... When the, when the angel said to Mary, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, God needed to save humanity. And so God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God came himself. You know, you've ever heard your parents say, don't make me come down there. Don't make me come up there. Don't make, well, we made Jesus come here. Because of our sin and our sin nature. And there was only one, there was only one answer, one solution, and we sang about it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus could cure what our problem was. By the way, I, I, is Kevin here? Okay. Oh, Kevin's in there? Uh, Kevin's message last week really gets us to where we are today because he talked about the slavery, the slaves that we deal with. We talked about one today of fear and jealousy. There's a whole list that he read. And the only way you get past those things is you, you relate to Jesus Christ. You, you can't, uh, there's not enough rules to keep us straight, people. There's not enough rules and regulations to make us act right. If there was, we'd be, we'd be doing pretty good, but we're not. But we deal with flesh. God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it affirms that Jesus Christ came to earth in the flesh, incarnate. It, it affirms that he was a human. Now, let me just say this. Jesus, when he was on the earth, was God. Jesus, when he was on the earth, was human. We like to say he was very God and he was very human. And this, this verse affirms that. That God the Father, he's, he's the, the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. By the way, they don't have any, they're not fighting each other. And the other thing is we know God the Father through our mediator. We have someone who came and became one of us so that he could mediate on our behalf with God the Father. We, we learn from the scripture that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father now. Everybody say now. Interced, interceding on our behalf. Scripture teaches us that. Look at this verse. There is one mediator 
between God and men. The man, everybody say the man, Christ Jesus. He was incarnate. He was in the flesh. He walked this earth just like we walk this earth. He got dirt on his feet. He got tired. He had to eat. He he obviously had to sleep because he was a human being, and yet he was God. Now, just when the smoke stops coming out of your ears, I'll continue. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm praying that you have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, two weeks ago, we dealt fairly extensively with with the same prayer of spirit of wisdom. I'm not going to go back and do that, but I want to talk just for a moment about the spirit of revelation. And it's a key, the key here is, is he says, I want you to have the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now we learned two weeks ago that the word knowledge there is a word epinosis, which that's not important, but what is important is that it means it's an intimate knowing of someone or something. It's not just having information. Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. That's relational. And we have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. And in that knowledge, we have revelation. Now, revelation is, uh, we'll deal with it, with it a little bit more in a moment, but revelation is when we see something we couldn't normally see. Oh, goodness, I, didn't, I left out my... I've got a uh, quote here by Jack Hayford somewhere in my notes. I think this is it. Put it up, William. Let me see if I got the right thing. Yeah, I do have all I need now is some way to read. Okay. Jack Hayford gives us a warning here when we talk about revelation. He says, it is important to avoid confusion in studying the word of God and to assure the, the avoidance of a destructive detour into humanistic ideas and hopeless error. The Holy Scriptures are called the revealed Word of God. The Bible declares that God's law, which my my favorite verse, if you buy a book from me or I give you a book, I'd rather you buy it. But anyway, (laughs) I always write Deuteronomy 29, 29 in, in the book. But anyway, the Bible declares that God's law and the prophets are the result of His revealing work, essentially describing the whole of the Old Testament as revealed. In the New Testament, this word is used of writings as well, writings that become part of the closed canon of the Holy Scriptures. Closed canon means we cannot add anything to the Scriptures. They are final. He goes on to say, wisdom and understanding as well as sound practical speech recommend that today's believer both know and clearly express what is meant when he or she speaks of revelations. And he's doing this because we have sometimes in certain parts of the church, we have people who get spooky and weird and out there, and they got all these crazy revelations that have nothing to do with what the Bible says. You've heard me recently refer to Bob Mumford talking about seeing people seeing green angels on blue bicycles, wearing shower caps, you know, just crazy stuff. And if you've had that experience, please don't, don't hope. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> but I could. Now, the Holy Spirit does indeed give us revelation as this text teaches. But such prophetic insight into the Word should never, everybody say never, yeah. 
I'm keeping you awake by doing that, by the way, should never be considered as equal to the actual giving of the Holy Scriptures. As helpful as insight into God's Word may be, the finality of the whole of the revelation of God's Holy Word is the only sure ground for building our lives. While we should desire revelation and the spirit of revelation, we must understand that whatever we think we see in a revelation has to be rooted and grounded in God's Word. If it's not, then get some counsel. Talk to somebody. Share with somebody and and reason together and see if you can figure out where that might rest. So that brings us to probably the most important part of this prayer to me. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I pray that the eyes of your heart, and obviously this is, even though the, uh, here I go again, even though the Greek word there is cardia, K-A-R-D-I-A, where obviously we get our word cardiac, he's not talking about the ticker. He's talking about our spirit. He's talking about who we really are, the, the, the sum total of who we are. And he's praying that the, the eyes of who we are would be illuminated. He's praying that there would be light shined upon what God wants us to see. He's praying that it would be made fully known to us by revealing clearly. We have to understand, saints, there are some things we cannot see until God desires for us to see them. And I'm not talking about something necessarily in the physical, but something, a spiritual truth or a spiritual revelation. We cannot see, that's why Deuteronomy 29, 29 is my favorite verse. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Those which are revealed belong to us. Our problem is that we try to get into God's secret things. And we're, and God says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to let you see by the Holy Spirit with your eyes. And Paul is praying that you would have that experience. The psalmist said it this way, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The truth is, We really can't totally grasp the content and the truth of the Scripture except God open our eyes. How many of you have ever had the experience, and I'm sure everybody in here can testify to this, you read the Scripture and you read a verse that you've read a hundred times. And one day you read it and you see something you never saw before. It's been there all along. The ink has been dry for many years. But you look at it. And you see something, and you say, well, I never saw that before. What happened? God opened the eyes of your heart. And he enlightened something. Again, it's not new truth. It's not new revelation. It's been there all along. But he he lets you see it like you never saw it before. That's revelation. The passive voice, I won't get into this, but anyway, the passive voice in in this verse indicates that this action is performed on the subject by an outside source. In other words, you can't open your own eyes. If, if you can, would you write a book? We'll get rich. <laughs> but you can't. And, and in the, the tense or the passive voice, it just teaches us that this happens to us 
from an outside source, clearly implying this is the work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's praying that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we can see. Now, how many of you understand he's not going to open your eyes so that you see everything? You would be like, uh, I heard Brother Charles talk about one time going overseas and Carolyn <coughs> took her hair dryer <coughs> and they got an adapter because they knew it was 220 over there. They got an adapter to plug a hair dryer in. And when they got there, they plugged the hair dryer in and realized they had the wrong adapter when it ran really fast for a few seconds. And then it began smoking, and it no longer ran again. And the, tr the fact is, if we were able to see what God has for us, all of it, we would run really fast for a few seconds. Smoke would come out of our ears. We would cease existing. Robert Morgan is the teaching pastor at Donaldson Fellowship, a great author, written many books. He illustrates this truth uh, in, in his story where he talks about, he says, when my CD player died, I asked a friend to look at it. Now, you, you music people, go ahead and start laughing. He says, I think the needle is broken. <laughs> he said, uh, CD players don't have needles. He said, they used laser beams to read songs encoded on the disc. The eye on yours is dusty. He cleaned it, and the problems disappeared. CD player ran just fine. He went on to say, in his prayer for the Ephesians, Paul asked God to enlighten their eyes so they could understand the message encoded in his word. You ever thought about the Bible be, being encoded and you and I needing God to clean the dust off of our laser beam in our minds and in our spirit to be able to see into what God say. Two weeks ago, Leah was leading worship and she read these verses. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. I knew then what I was going to be speaking on today and I, I made note of the fact that these creatures were full of eyes. E-Y-E-S. Two verses later, it says the same thing. The four living creatures, each of them are full of eyes all around and within. And of course, you think about eyes all around. That's something you'd see in Star Wars or something. Do you think it's important to God that we be able to see? And if not, why would his, why would his creatures be full of eyes all around? Why would eyes be so important? Because God wants you to see. And that seeing is good. Second Corinthians teaches us this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The enemy's job is to keep people from seeing. And watch the, watch the two verses later. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light. Of the knowledge of the glory of God. The devil doesn't want people to see. God shines his lights in our hearts. So that we can give the light. So people can see. People can be, can break the chains that we sang about. That people could see. We need to ask God to let us see. Because the next thing he says is. 
in uh, uh, verse 18, he says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may know or that you may see. That you may see the hope to which he has called you. Or you may see the hope of his calling. How many of you understand that when we come to Christ, when we come to God, we don't come on our timetable? When I was in high school, I'd be trying to witness to my friends. I didn't know, I didn't know any better than what to answer them, but I'd say I'd try to ask them to come to Christ. And they said, well, when I get ready. Well, now I would say, it ain't about when you get ready, dude. It's when God gets ready. God's going God's to call you, and you better answer. All of us who have come to Christ have been called. God has called. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And we came to him. And he says, I want you to know what's the hope to which he has called you. The hope of his call. By the way, aren't you glad he called you? Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. I want to submit to you that having no hope is being without God. And being without God is having no hope. Paul writes to the Roman church, now hope that is seen is not hope. If you can see it, it's not hope. It's, it's, a, it's something you can touch. Hebrews 11.1 1 teaches that faith is the substance of the things hoped for. Faith gives hope substance because we believe and we anticipate. Paul writes to Titus that we're waiting for our blessed hope. What is our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God. Peter writes, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, I asked you earlier to turn to Lamentations 3. So at least pretend you are if you're not. I want you to see that this is actually a song that we have sung before. But I want you to understand the nature of hope. Hope is not what is not. I hope that I can do that. That's not hope. Hope is what God gives us that we can we can see into the future. Let's see what the what uh, Jeremiah in his lamentation said. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Uh, by the way, uh, that's not good. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. I mean, the whole purpose of the book of Lamentations is he's lamenting. Y'all say that pastor's quick. Well, I tell you what. Verse, <laughs> verse 21. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind and therefore he has hope? Next verse, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never, everybody say never. never. That's a long time. Y'all realize that? His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. 
regardless of what you're going through, as we, we spoke earlier, regardless of what things look like, there is a hope that transcends what we see. There is a hope that transcends even our personal experience because the truth prevails over what we think is reality. God's truth is reality. Regardless of what difficulty we're facing, and Jeremiah was facing some deep difficulties, the steadfast love of God never ceases. It's never going away. It's new every morning. You go to bed tonight, you've used up today's mercies. No problem. God's got his bank open in the morning. You got some more headed your way. Hope. What keeps us going? What keeps us moving? Hope. If we don't have hope, you know what we are? Y'all going to love this. Hopeless. I did a lot of studying to get that. Now, come on. We're hopeless. And if you're, you, you meet people who are miserable. You meet people whose life is a wreck. You meet people and you say, well, they're, they're the most hopeless individual I ever met. And they're miserable because they have no hope. Paul said, I want your eyes to be open that you can see the hope that he's called you to, that you can see the hope that you have in him. I, I, Skip this one. This is the most important part about hope. Colossians one twenty seven. Christ in you is the hope of glory. The greatest hope we have. The greatest thing we have to hold on to is that Jesus Christ is part of us. The hope of our glory and the hope of his glory. And he makes an interesting statement. He says that you could see the glorious riches of his inheritance. And here's where, the, here's where we need to watch what it says. In the saints. Now, it would be easy to read that verse to say that we have a great inheritance in God, and we do. We just read Peter mentioned that. It would be easy to read that and say we have an inheritance or riches of inheritance, but that's not really what he said, did he? He said that you could see the glorious riches of his inheritance in the, excuse me, in the saints. What do you mean by that? Well, I'll tell you what I mean. Deuteronomy 32, 9 says, for the Lord's portion is his people. The psalmist said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. While it is true that we have an inheritance in God, this particular verse is speaking of our being God's inheritance. Now, I don't just mean that we are, uh, that we, you know, we're, we're, we're blessing God. Isn't God lucky to have us? I think some people, when they come to Jesus, I think they come with that attitude. Boy, aren't you happy, Jesus, I finally gave in. I'll leave that alone. But I'll say this, that the word inheritance there could be better translated heirship, H-E-I-R-S-H-I-P, that we are his heirs. We are his heirs. We are his portion. And, and he relates to us as his body in the earth, because we are his portion, his inheritance. And then he goes on to say, he says, and the, I want you to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The immeasurable. Now, again, I studied a long time to figure this out. But immeasurable can't be measured. <laughs> y'all are, are staying with me, I see. 
There is no measuring cup that can measure God's power. But the next statement is what makes that so great. Toward us who believe. He didn't just keep it to himself. He, he gives us his power. And power is not some strange. Sometimes I think we do an injustice in the church when we try to tell people that the word dunamis is where we get our word dynamite from. Uh, you know, dynamite blows things up and destroys things. God's power improves things. A better word is ability. His immeasurable ability that he gives us. Have you ever done things? Like pull off the road and miss a wreck. And, and you, how'd that happen? Because you had an immeasurable ability that you could not create on your own in that moment. His immeasurable, the greatness of his power. The, the, the exertion there of strength is like the exertion of someone in kingly authority. King of kings, Lord of lords. Towards us, towards us, uh, the motion is in the direction of us. It's marking a person or a thing that, that is inclined towards. You say, has God forgotten about me? No, he's inclined towards you. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have inclined in our direction the very strength of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Don't let that go by, saints. Don't let that go by. And he says, according to. I love the according to the energetic working of his might. When we see the word working in the Bible, in these cases, most of the time, it's a word that we translate energy or energetic. God is not a static God. God is not an asleep God. God has not removed himself to some far-off corner of the universe. And when, when, the, when the consummation of the age is come, that he's going to come back from wherever he went. And until then, we just do what we do and we say what we say. Nope. God is involved in your life every day. And he is working with his energy in your life. And then he finishes up this passage with a description of his mighty power. What does that look like? He said he worked it in Christ. The energetic, the energetic power in Christ. What happened? Uh, when he raised him from the dead. You know, we have, we have taught that and talked about it so long and we should continue to talk about it that sometimes we just go right through that. Well, you know, God's power is God's power. He raised him from the dead. Yeah. You know, there was a moment when the devil thought he had won. The body of Jesus is laying in the tomb. In Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, wrapped in a, in a shroud. And the devil standing outside the cave or inside the cave saying, okay, guys, we finally did it. And then something funny happened. I don't know how it happened, but I imagine that Jesus was laying there and maybe his big toes started wiggling. I'd love to have seen the devil looking at that. Yeah, have y'all ever heard the song, The Champion or what it is by Carmen? I've, we've seen a, a dramatic display of that. Anyway, I don't know what happened, but one thing that I know did happen is that Jesus got up off of that table. Yes. We also know, and I'm not going to spend time, we also know that he, he's OCD. He took time <laughs> to fold the shroud. We know that. 
He was laying there folded where he was. So don't y'all give me any more trouble about being OCD. See, that thing right there has been bugging me ever since I put it there. We're going to straighten that up. What happened? Something happened. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. God, by the power of his holy, the energetic working of his power, infused that into that body that was dead. He wasn't comatose. We have people, theologians today, that try to tell us he was just in a coma or he was just sleeping. No, if Jerry Clower would have been alive, he'd have said he was graveyard dead. Dead. But the power, now I'm, I'm making a point here, so just hang on. It's not time to eat yet. That power that infused him, it's in you. He said, if the same power, and this that was a rhetorical question, by the way. If the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you, which again is a rhetorical statement. It is in you. And it's working in you. It's changing you. It's, it's the things Kevin talked about last week. It's setting you free from those things. Those slaves. His power. And then it goes on to say that he was, that he seated him at his right hand. And sometimes we go over that. We think, Somehow we miss the fact that the power of God's involved in that. And today Jesus is, by the power of God, immeasurable greatness of his power, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Jesus who walked the earth, the Jesus who died a sinner's death, we do understand that the death he died was reserved for the vilest of criminals. The execution that he experienced was reserved for those the lowest part of society. And he died a sinner's, criminal's death. And yet the next thing you see, he's seated, seating, sitting, seated. He's sitting down <laughs> at the right hand of God the Father. How do you get from one place to the other? The power of God. Philippians says, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, you know there's no other name. You know there's no other way. That at the name of, shut up. That the name of Jesus, for those listening audio in audio that was speaking to my phone, not any of the people in the room. <laughs> Think about you listening to the podcast and the preacher says, shut up. <laughs> that at the name of Jesus, everybody say Jesus. Jesus. Every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, those on the earth, and interestingly enough, those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
No one else's name is exalted like that. No one else is seated at the right hand of the Father. No one else is available for us to get to God the Father except Jesus Christ the Son. No one comes to me, and this is Jesus talking, not me. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He said, no one comes to me except the Father draw him. There's no other way. There, there's no name under heaven given among him. No other name whereby men must be saved than Jesus Christ. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. And he says that, and he teaches us that this power that God has exerted in the Son exalts him far above. Don't miss those two words. Far above. Far above sin, far above turmoil, far above issues, far above other kingdoms, far above everything else. Jesus has been exalted far above. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, which is God's people in the earth, We are the fullness of Jesus Christ in the earth. In other words, we just did a series on this. But in other words, we are the vehicle by which his mission is accomplished in the earth. We fulfill what he started under the direction of the head. It's when we get disconnected from the head that we have problems. So, you were dead. Every one of us, before we, we accepted Jesus Christ, before we had that divine exchange, we were dead. But he says, now you're alive. This is Ephesians 2, by the way. If you just, he said, you were dead, but now you're alive. He said, you once lived in the passion of the flesh. That was last Sunday. The slaves that Kevin identified were the passions of the flesh. You once lived in the passion of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were, we were on our Mayberry cruise this week. Somebody said, what in the world's a Mayberry cruise? Just what you think. <laughs> a bunch of Andy Griffith show fans together. Uh, and I looked around the ship and I saw people doing things and saying things. And some were good and some were not good and some were embarrassing. Not in the Mayberry group, by the way. Let me just make that clear. <laughs> thought to myself, you know, one of the things that we've done in the church, not just not this church, hopefully not this church at all, but in the church universal, one of the things we've done is we've reduced Christianity to behavior. Do not drink, do not chew, and do not run with those who do. Uh, I didn't make that up, by the way. We have reduced Christianity to stop saying swear words. And, you know, all this stuff. And by the way, you know, I think, again, Kevin pointed out last Sunday, God will take care of that. You know, you, you've you heard me say, Jesus said he was going to make us fishers of men, which means he said, if you'll catch them, I'll clean them. How many of us think that our job is to catch them and clean them? Lord, help me. But I looked around that boat and I thought the key, the issue is who's your king? 
The issue is what kingdom, under which what kingdom are you residing? What kingdom are you observing the characteristics and the principles of in your daily life? And Jesus prayed that God's kingdom would come to earth. And so that means that his will would be done on earth like it is in heaven. So the characteristics of whatever's going on in heaven would come to earth. And the, the issue is not whether you said a bad word today. I wish you wouldn't, but if you did, that's okay. Uh, the issue's not, well, I'm not even going to go down the list. They're just things. We always want to go down the list. And I've heard people say, well, if they, I can't believe a person can do that and still be saved. Well, it ain't that. That's not the issue. Because stopping that will not get you saved. The issue is, who's your king? Who's the sovereign over your life? And he says, you once lived in the passion of the flesh. In that case, your flesh is your king. In that case, you are, and Kevin pointed out last week that if you're living by the flesh and you're, you're, you're doing what the devil wants, you're serving him. But God, I love that great interruption. But God, but God, he said, now you have been saved. And now you are his work of art. Where in the world did that come from? So we forget Ephesians 2.10. You are his workmanship. You were created for good works. Let me hasten to, to mention, you've heard me say this, we are not Christians because we do good works. You can't do enough good works to get yourself to heaven. You can't do it. We are not Christians because we do good works, but we do good works because we're Christians. There's a difference. See, so you don't believe in doing good works? That's what he's teaching us. We were created to do good works. And the word there, workmanship, is really means artisan. We are God's work of art. We were made to, we were made to walk or live in his good works because of what he's done in us. Because of God answering the prayer that Paul prayed for you in Ephesians 1. You okay with that? Stand with me.